How you doing? This is Sam Tolly with Trust in the Truth with Sam Tolly. And this is going to be part two of my series on was Dr. Martin Luther King, a Christian. Now, I was hoping that I can get through this in two to three segments. I don't think that's going to be possible. The um, segment I want to do this evening regarding a second writing of his, the more I dwelled into it, the more stuff came out. And it's, you know, it's going to be impossible to do it adequately in one setting. So I'm going to break this one paper he did up in two, maybe three. Hopefully I can get this one done next week because there's an entirely different thing regarding Dr. King I wanted to talk about once I get through with this one. But we need to get to it. So here it is. Oops, let me get on the right page here. Okay. So today I want to discuss part of a paper that Dr. King did called What Experiences of Christian Living in the Early Christian, Christian Century Led to the Christian Doctrine of Divine Sonship of Jesus, the Virgin Birth, and the Bodily Resurrection. Now, like the paper... I discussed last week, this is a writing that he did in his theological college in Crozier Theological Seminary. And I think last week, the question was already answered, was Dr. King a Christian? You know, many people get the funny idea that being a Christian is saying a prayer saying a couple of things, asking Jesus to come into your heart and walking away, and that's it. They don't have a, an idea of what Christianity really is or understanding the gospel. And it's fascinating that someone that is purported to be a minister of the gospel may or may not understand what Christianity is. So I guess in this liberal field of theology, which Dr. King operated in, uh, they have another definition of Christianity. Well, we're going to look into his paperwork and see if we can find out what is the, well, part of the true definition of Christianity. So according to this paper and the details, <coughs> excuse me, during Dr. King's second year at Crozier Theological Seminary, he took a two-term required course in systematic theology. Christian Theology for Today with George W. Davis. First, for the first assignment of the term, Davis asked his student to use George Henley's The Symbol of Faith. Um, let's see here. Excuse me. I get my paperwork mixed up here. Hold on, bear with me here. Examination of the Apostles' Creed in the essay, King follows the book's structure and argument closely. 
when he discusses probable influence of Greek mythology on Christian thought, Davis prods, is there any doubt about it? On balance, King shows himself willing to abandon scriptural literism, remaining confident that this would not undermine the foundation, excuse me, the profound foundation on the Christian doctrines Davis committed. Well done and gave the paper an A minus. Now, let me get my paperwork straightened out here. Oh, there we go. Right, we get there. Okay. Um, it's fascinating that liberalism and Christianity is, is brought together like this. We said would King himself was willing to abandon scriptural literism. The moment you abandon or reinterpret the literal meaning of the text that the writer means literally, you're open to all kinds of error. You're open to anything. I mean, there's certain writings that are metaphoric. There's certain writings that are poetic. There, there, there are certain writings that are meant to be taken absolutely literally. And if you change, you reject the literal interpretation that is, that is based on the context. Context is the before and the after of a certain text, maybe the whole paragraph and maybe the whole book. But if you take the literal meaning away from the context as intended by the writer to the people that he was writing to, meaning these first century uh, writers writing to a first century crowd, if you take away what the writer was trying to express to them and re-symbolize it or re-manufacture it, you can, you can change it to mean anything. Therefore, it means nothing. So you have to always be careful when dealing with scripture to pay attention to the context, to pay attention to the text, to pay attention to the structure, to pay attention to what it's talking about at that time and what it's trying to give you or give them actually what it's trying to give those people first. And then we apply our current culture and see how it fits into that um, thought process at that time. So, I guess King's document starts as follows. In order to understand the meaning and the significance of any doctrine or any creed, it is necessary to study the experiences of the individuals that produce them. Doctrines and creeds do not spring forth uncaused like Athene sprang from the head of Zeus, but they grow out of the historical settings and the psychological moods of the individuals that set them forth. All ideas, however profound or however naive, are produced by conditions and experiences that grow from the producer's environments. You know, this, it, it makes me wonder, was he trying to put in some filler at this time? Because this is really not saying anything, especially when we're talking about Christian doctrines. He's not talking about anybody's doctrines or creeds. He's talking about doctrines of the church that he purportedly uh, is a member of. And so if we're talking about Christian doctrines and creeds, they're not based on um, the conditions and the environments that people are, are living in. They were based on the word of God. They were based on the written word of God. That's what these doctrines, these biblical doctrines are based on. And 
you know, Webster's uh, Dictionary of 1828 says a brief, a creed is a brief summary of Christian faith. Oxford says a system of Christian or other religious belief, a faith. So creeds is it, it, like a, a snapshot, have you will, you know, you know, this is like a, a this is like just a little declaration. This is what we believe. You go into many different churches. They'll have a creed listed. They'll have this is what we believe. That, that's pretty much the creed of that church. Some things are biblical in some places. Some things are not. But the church, by and large, their creed is based on what God said, what God wants us to know and what God wants us to believe. It is not based on, what does he say, the psychological moods of individuals, the historical settings. That is not what the Bible creeds are based on. You know, you know, the, the word of God is supposed to have you know, been given to man through the power of the Holy Spirit. Go on to the next paragraph. In this paper... We shall discuss the experiences of early Christians, which lead to three rather orthodox doctrines, the divine sonship of Jesus, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection. I found, I found that wording kind of strange, three rather orthodox doctrines. I don't know, maybe in the 20th century, in the late 40s and 50s, this is the way people talk. But I always looked at the sonship of Jesus, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection is not rather uh, orthodox doctrine. These are orthodox doctrines. These are these are doctrines upon which there is no equivocation allowed if you're a Christian. Each of these doctrines is a shrine in what is known as the Apostles Creed. Yes. Before we go any further, let's take a look at the Apostles' Creed. Let's see here. So we'll know exactly what we're talking about here. Let's talk about the Apostles' Creed for a second. Let's look at this Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He ascended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, this is not saying the Holy Roman Catholic Church, okay? Catholic was meaning universal, the Holy Universal Church, the Universal Church of Believers, meaning everybody. So, for those that don't know better, don't assume that this means Catholic, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism. This is not what this creed is talking about. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, this is the Apostles' Creed. Um, 
on a second. Let me bring me back in here. Yeah, there we go. This is Apostles' Creed. Now, let's look at what he continues to say about the Apostles' Creed. Okay. Let's see if we can get this to make sense. Now, we'll get rid of the Creed. You can't see it that well. He goes on to say, it is this creed that has stood as a symbol of faith for many Christians over the year. I would not call it a symbol of faith, but maybe since this is what he's talking about his class, I would say a statement of faith. This is a quantifiable statement of faith to Christians. Even to this day, it is recited in many churches. But in the minds of many sincere Christians, this creed has planted a seed of confusion, which has grown to an oak of doubt. They have seen this creed as incompatible with all scientific knowledge, and so they have proceeded to reject its content. Now, this is wow. Hold on a second. This is amazing to me. Did you understand what he just said? He just rejected. Well, if I'm going to take it straight from the creed, he rejected God the Father Almighty. I assume he still believed that. Creed of heaven and earth. I think he believed that Jesus was a son, but I don't think he understands him as Lord or, or God the son. I believe he's rejecting the virgin birth, as we shall see. Um, what else they rejected? He hasn't, I don't know. He knows he suffered. Okay. I think he rejects the resurrection too, as we'll see later on. But nevertheless, he said, and I shall repeat it, that this similar faith, it is this creed, the Apostles' Creed, that to this day it is recited in many churches, but in the minds of many sincere Christians. You know, I, when I think about sincere Christians, there are many sincere Christians they don't have a clue about what the Bible says. But I'll get back to that in a minute. This creed has planted a seed of confusion, which has grown to an oak of doubt. They see this creed as incompatible with all scientific knowledge. And so they have proceeded to reject its content. Now, Dr. King... Dr. King seems to be arguing from a position of an atheist. The Bible is not incompatible with scientists. Matter of fact, you look at Pasteur, you look at, you look at the earliest scientists, they were believers in the Bible. Um, King, it seems that he's just dismissing the supernatural aspects of the Bible. I mean, the Bible is nothing more than a partial history book intertwined with fairy tales and unsubstantial moral requirements absent the supernatural. If we fail to accept the reality of the supernatural God, excuse me, who is beyond time and space, who has the ability or the capacity to change the very fundamental laws that he established, we're wasting our time believing in the Bible. We're wasting our time calling ourselves Christians. Absent the supernatural, there is no Christianity. There is no Judaism. You know, I mean, you can't go through the Bible without there being a supernatural aspect to it. You know, yes, it says that Jesus walked on water. Well, either he did or either he didn't. Yes, the Bible says that he raised uh, Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave for four days. Either he did, either he didn't. It says the axe floated on water. 
He said, Elijah went to Mount Carmel, met the prophets of Baal, had them build uh, a, a moat and, and, and put rocks in it or whatever and, and dump a bunch of water on them and had people crying all day for God to suck up the water and burn up the rocks. And Baal's prophets couldn't do it, but Elijah asked God and he burned up everything. It says that Moses brought the people from Israel across the Red Sea. That God parted the Red Sea, made dry ground, and they walked on it or they walked across it. And then when Egypt, the, the Pharaoh's people tried to follow them, the sea covered them up and drowned them. It says that, uh, that Samson tore down the gates of, uh, of the Philistines' gate, that he killed a thousand Philistines with a dead gum ran, uh, uh, some kind of um, bone, you know, of an animal. The Bible is full of supernatural sayings. Either they are true or either they are false. We have to understand which is which. And, and you know, there's many people, sincere Christians, going back to these sincere Christians I was alluding to earlier, that believe the Bible, but they really don't have much of a basis on their belief other than, okay, I believe that. You know, God said, I'll believe anything. And I and you know what I I think people like that are a little naive because they're not paying attention to everything that God is saying. You know, you can say, yeah, I just believe it, but then when you you run across some atheist, some smart atheist, or some heretic, or somebody, and they'll trap you up because your faith is based on no evidence. It's based on, okay, well, I read this and, and, and that's it. I, I'm, you know, Maybe I'm not making myself clear, but they're just digging a hole that they don't know how to get themselves out of. They don't really have a, subst a substantive uh, understanding of the power of God in his word. Or, or they, have, they don't have something that they can I mean, firmly stand on the proof, the, the supernatural existence of God. And we can prove the supernatural existence of God. It's, it's not difficult. Now, I haven't said that. I know it just opened myself up to a whole big can of doo-doo. Can I flatly, straight out say that I can prove God's existence? No. But the evidence, the evidence is substantial. The evidence of to prove him is corroborable. And the fact of it is, is the enemy, and anyone out there has never been able to disprove his existence. And God himself, he had all these prophets making all these prophecies, saying all these things that would happen. And God himself has told us that they have to happen. They have to happen 100% true. And do you know that there's over 300 prophecies or about 300 prophecies or so in the Old Testament predicting the coming of Jesus? And Jesus fulfilled all of them? I plan on going through some of those uh, hopefully next week. But I want to show right now a supernatural event that God did that man cannot explain. Just this is one supernatural event. But first, let's look at a test that God gave man. And I want you to pay close attention to this test. Let me get this out of here. I'm going to get me out of here, too. Uh, 
Look closely here. At Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is a test that God has given us to test people that claim that they represent God. He says, I will raise up for them, talk about his people, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the names of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, true that is a word that the lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken presumptuously you need not be afraid of him see god you, you, we got all these people running around and we've had a bunch you know i'm a prophet i'm an apostle i'm all this i'm all that and people prophesying well you know as far as future events and things like that. God made it clear in Deuteronomy. If a person is a prophet of his, what he says has to come through 100%. There is no equivocation. There is no doctrine in it. There is no sideways shuffle. There is no half done. It has to come completely true the way this person said it was if he's representing God. You know, I was I deal with um, people from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints sometimes, and one of the questions I love to ask Mormons because they say that they have the restored gospel and Joseph Smith is their prophet. And so I remember looking in the Book of Mormon. And there was a prophecy that Joseph Smith would build a temple in New Jerusalem, Missouri. And that temple would be dedicated by his hand. Well, there has never been a New Jerusalem, Missouri. Never. There was, there was not one in the time of Joseph Smith, and there's not one now. So, does Joseph Smith pass the test of Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22? And the answer is no. He, he did not pass that test. And when I, every time I spoke to a Mormon and I brought that up, it made them uncomfortable. Well, I didn't make the test. God did. And see, this is one of the ways that God substantiates himself from other folks. The way that he, 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 he sort of clears the deck, as it were. Because he's not going to let people just do whatever the heck they think they can do in his name. And you'll find these people turning around, doing all kinds of goofy stuff. I remember... Many years ago, when I was in the word faith, um, the word faith ministry kind of stuff, you know, the people, the name it and claim it, um, Copeland, Price, Hagen, all this kind of stuff. So I was at this church, and I remember distinctively, we uh, had this 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 fellow come over and said he was supposed to have been a prophet. And we were, the church that we were in, we were uh, renting the building at that time. We didn't, the church didn't own that church. So this quote-unquote prophet 
he said, all you got to do, God told him, you walk around that building like they walked around the jaw of the, uh, the, the walls of Jericho. And you're going to own that building. So we did. We walked around it. I don't know what the time frame was, but sometime thereafter, we had to find someplace else to worship. Now, the pastor never brought that up. The deacons, the associate pastors, all these other folks, no one ever said anything about it. That was the last of that. But I had already read Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22. And it was clear to me <laughs> that was a false prophecy. There wasn't nothing true about that. But the God of the Bible doesn't make false prophecies. And the God of the Bible does supernatural stuff. So let's talk about one. And I'll talk about this fellow named Cyrus, this Persian. First, I want to read an article that was written in 2000 by uh, Eric Lyons regarding the prophecy and then i'll read you the biblical backup so let's go to that because i think his article will help the the 21st century mind understand this a little bit better before we we, we go to it okay so here we go it says imagine taking a trip to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and visiting the state house where the Constitution Convention took place in 1786. You know, that's when they were trying to ratify the Constitution to put it all together, uh, you know, 1777, well, 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, and, you know, they were getting all this stuff together. Anyway, during the tour, your guide points to a document dating back to just this side of the convention, about the year 1820. The piece of parchment tells us of a man named George W. Bush from Austin, Texas, who would be president of the United States within the next 200 years. But how could someone know that a man named George W. Bush would be born in the United States? And how could someone know more than a century before Mr. Bush was born that he would be president of the United States? Furthermore, how could someone in 1820 know that a man from Texas named George F. I mean, George W. Bush would be president of the United States when Texas wasn't even part of the Union yet? Such a prophecy truly would be amazing. Yet, obviously, no such prediction was ever made. In fact, despite all the public pu publicity that psychic hotlines receive, only God can foretell the future. One of the reasons we know the Bible is from God is that it contains hundreds of of prophecies about individuals, lands, and nations similar to the example above. Um, let me get this out of here. Excuse me. Let me do it this way. Okay. Where am I at here? One such prophecy was about a man named Cyrus and two nations, Babylon and Medo-Persian Empire. Isaiah vividly described how God would destroy the powerful kingdom of Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. Now, this is an earlier prophecy. Writing as if it had already occurred, commonly known as the prophetic perfect frequently employed in the Old Testament to stress 
the absolute certainty of fulfillment, Isaiah 53. Isaiah declared Babylon would fall, Isaiah 21, verse 9. He then prophesied that Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians, Isaiah 13, 21, verse 1 through 10. Later, he proclaimed that the golden city Babylon would be conquered by a man named Cyrus, Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 1 to 7. Those are the scriptures we're going to look at shortly. This remarkable prophecy, especially since Cyrus was not born until almost 150 years after Isaiah penned these words. Now, that's the point. Cyrus wasn't even born yet. God, the Holy Spirit, influenced Isaiah to prophesy and talk about a man by name that is that is 150 years yet to even come into existence. Not only did Isaiah predict that Cyrus would overthrow Babylon, but he also wrote that Cyrus, serving as Jehovah's anointed and shepherd, would release the Jews from captivity and assist them in their return to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. All of this was written almost 200 years before Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. Amazing. In case you are wondering about the factuality of this story, secular history verifies that all these events came true. There really was a man named Cyrus who ruled the Medio Persian Empire. He did conquer Babylon. And just as Isaiah prophesied, he assisted the Jews in their return to Jerusalem in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, you're going to tell me all oh, this is coincidence? This isn't God. Hold on a second. I'm trying to change the page. Ah, this is it. Let me change on. Truly, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man but only holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Like I said, this is the prophecy of Cyrus written by Eric Lyons uh, from apologeticpress.org. You can go on there directly and get this article. Now think about that. Here's a prophecy about a man who's a pagan. He was not a believer. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He, he was a pagan that God foretold 150 to 200 years before he was born that he was going to be used by God. He was going to be God's shepherd and God's anointed to do God's will, to bring his people back from captivity and to let them rebuild God's temple. That is a supernatural example of the power of God. That is an example that Christians could hang their hat on, that believers in God can use to substantiate the existence of God that would help you solidify your belief in a living God. Now, let's look at the Bible, what it says exactly. Let's go to the, the original prophecies in Isaiah. So starting at Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 7. Who says of Cyrus? That's God. Said, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, 
let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him and to strip the kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. God, right here, he's saying, look, he didn't name him, and he's saying, I'm summoning you by name, and this is over 150 years before this dude was even born. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all things. <laughs> I mean, hey, this is this is this is phenomenal. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that should make you want to get up and shout. People talking about shouting and, and getting happy and everything. This, instead of just looking at the Bible and not even investigating what God did and not investigate the things of God, investigate the history of the Bible, investigate the prophecies that God has outlined. He gave all this stuff to build us, all this stuff to make us stronger, all this stuff to increase our faith and trust in him. Instead of people saying, oh, there ain't no God, you're stupid, and all that fairy tales and stuff. They can't explain this. They try to lie and say, oh, they, this was written after the fact. No, they have not been able to refute one book of the Bible, period. They try as many years. They try. But this prophecy came true. This prophecy was not even... I mean, it, it, it gets no clearer than that. Now, let's go to a point in time in another book in the Bible, in Second Chronicles, where the prophecy is being fulfilled. 150-something years later. Here we are, 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 22 and 23. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, who? You know, the Bible is a historical book, too. They have not been able to refute any of the historical context in the Bible. They have not been able to refute any of the archaeological context in the Bible. Just like I was mentioning earlier in um, about the Book of Mormon, about Joseph Smith. You know, they list all kinds of lands in the Book of Mormon. They list all kinds of stuff that no one's ever been able to define. Coins, lands, uh, tribes of people, no one. And they hasn't been able to find anything remotely uh, authenticating any of that stuff. But there has never been a group of people 
There has never been a country. There has never been any place or anything in the Bible that has been proven to not exist. Either it has been discovered already or they haven't discovered it yet, but nothing has been refuted. Nothing. That goes back to that Deuteronomy 18, that God is not a liar. Or he is not a man, he shall lie. We've never been able, not we, but the unbelievers, the pagans, the atheists, the, the anti-God have been able to refute the findings, the archaeology, the, the, <clears throat> the histories, the peoples, the lands that are named in the Bible. Matter of fact, the primary book that 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 people in the Holy Land use for archaeological expedition is the Bible. It is the primary book. They have found inscriptions of Pilate. They have found uh, the ossuary of the, uh, oh, golly. You know, the, the who was that? The high priest at the time of Jesus. They found all kinds of stuff. And every, like they said, it was said that every turn of the spade substantiates the word of God. So here we go. Uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. That's power, folks. That's, that, that is power. That, that right there is, is, is power that is beyond the ability of man. No man has that kind of power. No man could do anything near that. Let me try to finish up this first section of Dr. King. And, and frankly, <laughs> I'm only getting down to the end of the first page, of the first full page. You know, I'm going to have to stop pretty quickly. I'm down at the last paragraph. But that's okay. That's why I said we'll continue. But if we dwell into the deeper meaning of these doctrines and somehow strip them of their literal interpretation, here we go again, strip them of their literal interpretation. Why would we want to do that? You strip them of the power of God, strip them of the meaning. We will find that they are based on a profound foundation. Although we may be able to argue with all degrees of logic that these doctrines are historically, and I think he was right, and philosophically untenable, yet we can never undermine the foundation on which they are based, as Dr. Headley has so cogently stated. What ultimately the creed signifies is not words, but spirit. I, I completely disagree with that. I think that's that's nonsense. The creeds signify the word of God, as I stated earlier. You know, you know, frankly, the, the statement doesn't make any sense to me uh, that if these doctrines are both historically and philosophically untenable, meaning not able to be maintained or defend against attack, then they have no foundation. You know, what, what, what is this idea of, of, of the foundation is not words, but spirit? What spirit? Whose spirit? It can't be the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. The creeds, the, the, the creeds is like a stamp, is a, is a slideshow, is a statement of the, of the gospel, a statement of the beliefs of the body of Christ. Dr. King, obviously, and this professor 
they, they, they don't want the literal interpretation of the Bible. And if you strip away the literal interpretation, then you strip away the foundation. If you strip away the foundation, then you strip away the gospel. If you strip away the, the supernatural aspects of the Bible, then you strip away the gospel. That's why I took the time to go through um, the story of Cyrus and the supernatural calling that God had on him. I, I did that specifically to let the novice Christian or the Christian that doesn't take the time to do the research to understand that your faith should it's not just based on this is what it said. There is there is quantifiable evidence that the Bible is the word of God and that God is a supernatural God and that the writings of Dr. King doesn't believe in a supernatural God. And in my estimation, it's impossible to be a Christian without believing that God exists supernaturally. It's just impossible. So that's going to be as far as we get on this one today. Next week, I will continue and I'm going to get into what he has to say about the sonship. Hopefully the virgin birth and then God willing, we can finish this thing with the resurrection. If it doesn't lead me down another trail, I feel is necessary, but it's important that the body of Christ understands. We, we shouldn't be intimidated with liberal thinking people to say they're Christians. We shouldn't be intimidated with atheistic people that says our foundation is nothing. As long as we stand on the word of God and we examine and search the word of God, it serves the truth. It serves the history. Look at the archaeological evidence left behind. Look at everything that God has given us, the different things that shape and, and, and form our faith and the fact that no one has been able to refute the word of God. No one. Unlike, as I said earlier, the Book of Mormon, which is easily refutable. So, until next week, God keep you. This is Sam Tolley. I'm out.